Hello, and welcome to the Evidence-Based Management Podcast. This episode accompanies Module 4 of the course, which is all about appraising evidence from practitioners, the people who have experience with the type of problem we're trying to solve, or the types of solutions we're considering. Having identified potential practitioners from whom to gather evidence, which was the focus of Module 3, we now need to determine how reliable and trustworthy they are as we move towards the identification of the problem or the likely solution. Of course, it's difficult to fully separate these two stages, but in this episode, we focus on the need to guard against our biases and any assumptions in terms of trustworthiness and reliability. I'm Karen Plum, a fellow student of evidence-based management, and to discuss this module, I'm joined by two of our podcast regulars, Eric Barenz and Professor Rob Breener, and in addition, we're joined by Dr. Christina Rader from Colorado College in America. Here we go. So let's consider the issue of bias. I suppose because of the negative connotations about being biased, we'd all like to think that only other people are biased, not us. We don't like to think that we fall prey to those unconscious thoughts that drive our behavior. After all, we're smart and intelligent and would surely notice if we had biases. But that's why they're referred to as unconscious biases. Often we aren't aware of what's driving our behavior, and indeed not all biases are bad or negative in nature. Our brains are constantly seeking ways to conserve energy, and anything that we don't have to start from scratch constitutes a saving. Neuroscience suggests that the brain works by using prediction, constantly comparing current situations with previously experienced ones to predict likely outcomes. If you don't have to think about how to react in each new situation, this saves energy. So many of our biases could be thought of as just the brain's way of saving you effort and indeed keeping you safe, which is its main role in life. Many of them are helpful, therefore, particularly in threatening or dangerous situations where you don't have the luxury of of thinking something through from first principles. You just need to, for example, run away from the ferocious animal that might eat you, or in modern day terms, to back away from a fire. I ask Eric Berens how we should think about biases and approach them with others so that we don't suggest that being biased makes us bad people. Well, maybe not use the term bias uh, (laughs) as a starting point and explain maybe the type of bias. So rather say, well, you're probably biased in favor of this. Say, well, people are inclined, of course, to look at information or evidence that supports their prior beliefs because... That may be a better approach. I don't think I ever use the term bias when I ask people about their experience or why they think this may work or why they think this may be a problem. But if your your colleagues are trained in evidence-based practice, then you should drop the term bias because they know exactly what you talk about. So when we train larger groups within an organization, 
then the term bias is used frequently and it doesn't need explanation and it's not threatening. It's more like, oh, yeah, you're right. Good point. The better approach is to ask questions to explore their thinking, particularly because in thinking they're biased, you may actually be falling for your own bias about their bias. So always explore further to see what lies behind what they say. Clearly, there are tons of biases. I found an infographic online that identifies 188. So there are lots of traps that we and others can fall into. Knowing about these biases doesn't help either. Even those that have studied them for decades, including Nobel laureate Daniel Kahneman, still fall prey to them. More about him later. Eric explains that the course concentrates on some key biases. Patternicity, so recognizing patterns and assuming causality confirmation bias, and group conformity. These three biases, recognizing or or assuming there's a pattern, there's a connection between A and B, A happened and afterwards B happened, so that must be related. And confirmation bias and group conformity are the most important biases. And if you don't have that much experience in an organization, keep these three in mind and look around and see what's happening. And I'm sure you will recognize them. I think that's true. The course also talks about availability bias, authority bias, and outcome bias. I asked Dr. Christina Rader, who teaches evidence-based practice as part of courses in management at Colorado College in America, if her students struggle with understanding any particular bias. In every class I teach, I try to talk about outcome bias, because a lot of times in management and and related courses, you know, maybe we do a case and then they want to hear what happened. And I always have to tell them what happened is not the answer. It doesn't tell you whether a good process was used. One of the things I, I try to help students get is the idea that you could be a success in spite of yourself. Things can be a success because you got lucky or because the economy was great. And so, and then along with that, the outcome bias, there can be a a tendency to focus just on a single firm or a single instance and not compare to the other firms or the other time periods that maybe something looks great, but then you look and see, well, the other firms outperformed by double. So those are things that we look at. I found outcome bias difficult to get my head around, and I thought it was worth looking at it again. So I asked Eric to explain it for me. Now, the outcome bias is indeed that you judge a decision based on the outcome. If the outcome is good, the decision must have been good. If the outcome was bad, the decision must have been bad. And that is, of course, a very serious fallacy, because if outcome of a project is successful, that doesn't mean that the project was run in a successful way. Or when the surgeon, for instance, operates a patient and the patient dies, that doesn't mean that the surgeon made mistakes or it was a bad surgeon. It's not a good indication of the quality of the decision maker. 
For instance, in the example of the surgeon, it could be that this surgeon gets the cases that are in a very bad condition because it's the best surgeon. And therefore, of course, if you get a lot of cases of patients that are in a bad health condition, probably more patients will die. And it's not because the surgeon is actually not good. No, the surgeon is actually the best surgeon we have. Therefore, we give him all these this hopeless cases. So the outcome is not always a good indicator for the quality of the decision. But we tend to have a look at outcomes and then say, well, this person was involved in a merger for two or three times and the outcome was good. So probably this is a good manager to manage the, the merger. Nah, not necessarily so. You really need to take a deeper look and, and see exactly what happened. I mean, just by sheer random chance, things can be black or can be white four times in a row. Just by sheer chance, something can go wrong or, you know, have a great outcome uh, without the decision-making maker having anything to do with it. And when it's three times a positive outcome and you say, must be a great decision-maker, and then you look into the decision-making process and you ask, how did you do it? Well, I have a crystal ball here and I saw it. What? Oh, my God, that's actually dreadful. Well, you know, the outcome was good. Well, that was more luck than wisdom. So that's why... Outcome bias is also something you need to take into account. I found that a helpful explanation, and I think it's such an easy trap to fall into, perhaps particularly relating to practitioners or so-called experts. Experts themselves also have their own biases, as Professor Rob Breener points out. And again, what I always say when it comes to experts, I think experts themselves are terrible sources of evidence because they have just as many biases as anyone else. However, experts are probably pretty good at helping you understand the evidence for yourself and helping you make judgments about how trustworthy or reliable or relevant it is. And that's quite a big distinction to me. It's not the, what they say, but they may be able to help you make more sense of it. I think that's great advice. And if I summed it up at this stage, it's never take anything as read and respectfully probe and challenge everything to satisfy yourself that the evidence is sound. And then even if the evidence isn't sound, learn from that outcome to help in your evaluation of other sources of evidence. What does Christina advise her students when addressing bias with practitioners? I think really <laughs> just come back to confirmation bias a lot. But yeah, that one, which has been named the most pernicious of the biases. So um, it's one reason that I keep coming back to it. I think confirmation bias just saves us such a lot of energy, which is why, as Christina says, it's so pernicious. It may be helpful here to talk about whose biases we're trying to trap, our own or those of other people. Knowing we have biases is a good start, and naturally by taking an evidence-based approach, we're already on a good path in terms of the biases we encounter. As Eric explains, using multiple sources of evidence is critical. The main answer is, of course, use multiple sources of evidence, not only your personal experience, but use evidence from the organization, other colleagues, and the scientific research. But if you are a change manager or a project leader, and in this particular case, in this module, you want to 
draw on evidence from practitioners, you need to take into account that these practitioners could be biased. And therefore, you have these three criteria. Does this person have a lot of experience with the situation? Did this person receive objective feedback? And the third one was this person in a regular and stable environment, because that makes his or her experience more valid and reliable. In all other cases, or in most cases, there may be biases that affect the experience or the judgment of the practitioner. It also occurs to me that as an evidence-based practitioner, my role is partly to be on the lookout for biases, but also that in order to ensure some separation of powers, as it were, perhaps I shouldn't be part of the actual decisions that are being taken. Christina explains that the role her students take is very clear. The advisory role that they play is very clear, that their job is to be able to say, here is what the evidence says. One thing that I work with them about is how do you separate? They always want to put in their own ideas from somewhere. And clients often like hearing those. So what do you do? <laughs> so how do you separate? Do, do I allow them to just throw in their ideas? Because it's less satisfying for my students when they don't get to throw in, well, based on this, you could do all these things. And I'm like, we haven't looked into any of those things, <laughs> right? Um, and it just shows how used to doing things that way we are as a society. You know, we just can't help ourselves. So, um, and it's funny. So I guess we, I need to add some, spend some time talking more about overconfidence too. <laughs> so anyway, but it's funny how the students can experience underconfidence and thinking they're not prepared to do this job. But then once they get an idea, easily overconfident and ready to share it. I think this is such a human response. We want to solve problems. We want to be helpful to show we have good ideas. But the separation is really important, particularly until you've evaluated possible solutions. Here's how Eric describes the role. Ideally, you should be as the evidence-based change manager, project manager, decision maker, be in charge of the process rather than make, I mean, you can make the final decision at the end based on all the evidence that's brought forward, but you're more like a judge. Like in a court of law, you invite people to come with, bring forward evidence, and that can be evidence from the organization, or it could be a witness statement in our situation that would be um, a practitioner that has experience with the problem and was you know, affected by the problem and people that have a solution and work with this elsewhere in other organizations. So, so you make sure that all the evidence is brought to the table and you are the judge to determine, to determine whether the evidence is admissible, yes or no, or whether it's wide and very subjective and you dismiss it and say, well, very nice, thank you, but that's your opinion and we're actually looking for more rigorous evidence than opinions. And presumably, I'm responsible for being the bias monitor. Clearly, if you have colleagues who are versed in some of the same concepts of evidence-based practice, they will also be alert to the typical tendency to cherry-pick the data. So that will help if, as a group, we are all on message. Daniel Kahneman said, if you are aware of your own biases, that's not enough. You will never, ever be able to neutralize 
your own biases, it's how your brain is wired. However, in a larger context, in an organization where multiple sources of evidence are brought together, there are multiple people and you also have uh, the role of bias detector and you can make sure that questions are asked in a non-leading way, that the evidence is gathered in an objective and reliable way. And you use these three criteria to judge whether the experience of a person is indeed valid and reliable, then you are way, it's easier to overcome these biases and make an unbiased decision. These three criteria are very interesting. Numerous opportunities to practice, direct objective feedback, and a regular predictable work environment. I wondered, in the world of knowledge work, who could satisfy those three? That's hard. That's why in an organization, evidence from practitioners is almost never enough. We do need evidence from multiple sources because... In the domain of management, the organization is by definition dynamic, unstable, and not predictable. So, yeah, that's an issue. That's the, but there are there are some situations where you could argue that maybe it's a little bit more stable than usual. And I think we gave the example of the the sales manager. That is already in a bit more stable situation, although you could argue that there are still influences and, and, and dynamics going on there. But for instance, when you look to the more procedural things, like a surgeon doing a procedure over and over again, or an engineer coming up with a solution, or if you get into the lean management area where a process is redesigned and it's done over and over and over again, and there's hard outcome information, then, then probably that is, is a more stable situation. But you are right. This is These are three criteria and they're hard. Like how many experience, how many opportunities to practice, what should be your hit rate in terms of change? I would say that if it, if we make the comparison with the baker and an orthopedic surgeon, I believe that is, of course, a kind of silly comparison because an orthopedic surgeon does five or six or eight or 12, you know, operations per week. And as a manager, you come across situations maybe five or six times a year. So it's by definition already quite a challenge. As a consultant, I've worked hard to be a reliable and trustworthy source of guidance and expertise to clients. I think many aspects of the process I've delivered would stand up to scrutiny. Many opportunities to practice and outcomes measured, certainly in terms of stakeholder feedback. But a reliable and predictable work environment when I work in change management? That's a tough one to meet. There's also the fact that as a consultant, I advise, but the client decides. They may not take all of my advice and follow my process. So when measuring outcomes, can I really either claim credit for success or take the blame if objectives haven't been met? When clients are choosing a consultant, they should presumably exercise these criteria in making their choice. That's quite a sobering thought, not because it would be difficult to put a case forward to say how I would meet the criteria, but then I suspect most clients make their choice based on gut feeling, whether they like the people, 
and whether the company has a big name or a good reputation. Naturally, where there are fixed procurement processes in place, one of the objectives is to avoid biased choices or gut-feeling choices, which of course is good. But not every client has such a process. And if you're going for a big name, then you're absolutely giving in to authority bias. What does Eric think about this? In many times, a consultant is not able to judge the outcome of, of his or her recommendation because the client did not follow up the recommendation for 100% or left things out or did something differently. So in terms of hard outcome feedback, it's not there because, as I said, the recommendation was not followed up. That's number one. So the consultant in this situation can't learn from his or her experience. The second one is that, of course, consultants are often driven also by a commercial target and a commercial interest. So for as a client, if you hire a consulting firm and you want to know what's actually this consultant's professional experience in terms of hit rate or, or opportunity practice, feedback, stable environment, well, maybe one, this person has a lot of experience Maybe the environment was kind of stable, although we just explained that it's very hard. But measuring the outcome, the hard outcome, that's a starting point. It's often not there. Uh, and second, there may be other reasons why this consultant recommends this specific a solution or a project, and that is commercial reasons. So that, that makes it hard. Hard or not, this is the real world. So as a consultant, my instinct is to reverse engineer some evidence-based decision criteria into consulting proposals so that clients are educated in a subtle way, giving them more evidence upon which to make their decision. Look, we can show you that we meet these three important criteria that you will be concerned about because you want to make the best decision. So I'll let you know how that goes. I asked Christina about how we might go about assessing the reliability and trustworthiness of consultants. Oh my gosh. <laughs> I mean, so difficult because so often consultants treat things as proprietary and there isn't a lot of background that you can get. But it just depends, right? Sometimes a consultant will say, I've done this number of projects and here's the results. But of course, you're not hearing about the things that didn't work or that uh, it would have turned out that way anyway. So, so I think that a lot of times you're left with logic. So are they saying things that you can see the log? Does the logic model even make sense for what they're proposing? And then, you know, so often we just go off of word of mouth and things like that. Not as comforting as I was hoping for, but that's the world we live in. Maybe that's enough about consultants for now. But I do think it's worth thinking about, as at some stage, you'll probably be considering using a consultant to provide advice and guidance. So you'll want to ask them some probing questions about their expertise. And on the subject of asking questions, clearly it's important to ask questions and lots and lots of them and not take anything as read. People in organizations have their own language. And I don't just mean acronyms and technical terms 
but they use terms like culture or engagement, for example, in a way that implies that we all know what they're talking about. And even if you think you know what they mean, ask, can you explain it to me? What do you mean by that? What does that look like? Can you give me an example? Forget about trying to appear smart and like you get it. It's a very human response and helps us feel connected to the person and maybe even part of their gang, particularly if we're more junior to the person we're questioning and we feel vulnerable and uncomfortable asking what could be awkward questions. But when we're looking for evidence, we need to be sure we understand what they mean by the words they use. That's far more important than looking smart. Here's Eric. If you're junior and you have this big shot executive and you ask this executive, what is your experience? What do you think is the problem? And then there's a whole story and you don't have a clue what this person is talking about, but it sounds very inspiring and very knowledgeable. You will be maybe hesitant to say, sorry, but I'm not sure whether I get it. Could you maybe explain or be more clear in, in what exactly the problem is? And if, you, if you're not impressed by all the BS in your organization and your experienced evidence-based manager, you will cut to the chase and say, very nice, but it's very unclear to me what exactly the problem is. And let's be clear, even if you aren't junior, senior people can be intimidating and they're usually short on time, sometimes lack patience and may get irritated that you don't understand what they've said. But think of it this way. If they can't explain it in a way that you can understand, maybe they aren't clear about it themselves. Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. So continue to probe respectfully, because otherwise you'll make assumptions about what they mean, and maybe you'll get it wrong. As a test, after you've listened to the practitioner, the expert or the senior leader stakeholder, can you summarize the problem or the solution in a minute or so? If not, and you're still not sure, then again, maybe it's time to ask more questions. That's all for this episode about appraising evidence from practitioners. Let me leave you with a summary from Eric and the two guiding questions that he recommends we all regularly adopt. One of the best questions you can ask when someone says, I think we have a problem with X or I, specifically when they use typical managerial talks and jargon, there's a lack of engagement or people don't take ownership for da 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 You would ask, can you give me an example? Can you give me an example where that was the case? And then probably it becomes more clear. What is the problem you're trying to solve? And can you give me an example? 